You are listening to a podcast of The View, where we discuss today's topics from an anti-racist, anti-oppressive, multicultural perspective. This podcast is brought to you by the Church of the Larger Fellowship. To subscribe, visit questformeaning.org or search for Church of the Larger Fellowship in the iTunes Store. Hey, good morning. Happy birthday, Asia Hauser. Ah! <laughs> Thank you. You've joined us for another episode of The View. Uh, we have lots to talk about today, but first let's just say hi. I'm in Minneapolis where I just paid a bunch of money, got my gutters cleaned, and last night all the leaves came down back into them. So, But at least they're finally coming down. But anyway, that's what's going on here. Aisha, besides your birthday, which is the big news, how are you? <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm Aisha Hauser in Seattle. I'm doing well, and happy birthday to you, Meg. Your, yours was yesterday, and happy wedding a couple days ago, and my wedding anniversary is also in November, so just have it all. It's a good and month. It's, it's a, good a good month, month, November. Yeah, and my spouse's birthday is also in November, which also means a lot of Scorpios, so that's a whole other thing, which could be great, um, and I'm doing well, so yeah, lots to talk about. Christina, you are in a vehicle? I am in Minneapolis, first of all, Christine Heribera joining you from Minneapolis. Aren't you in St. Paul right now? I just have to ask that. Oh, I, you know, I have no idea. I know, but people in St. Paul get very <laughs> upset about this. St. <laughs> Paul, Minneapolis. I'm in Minnesota. I do know that. <laughs> and I'm here visiting friends and I actually got to see Meg Riley in person and in her, you, you, I got to see all the areas of her home that I've seen on The View in the past. And most importantly, meet Parker, her wonderful dog. So I'm excited to join you all from, from the car, Minneapolis, St. Paul, somewhere here. And Lori, you're joining us on Tech today. That's fantastic. Hi, everybody. Yes, um, I'm Lori Stone-Sertoski, and I am joining you from the actual Mountain Standard Time Zone in Phoenix, Arizona. There is a precious six months of the year where I get to actually observe Mountain Standard Time, and this is it. Uh, so uh, I will be uh, monitoring our... Uh, social media channels on Twitter and Facebook. So join us live on Facebook and you can tweet on hashtag the view, T H E V U U. And any questions or comments that you have, I'll be feeding to our guests and our hosts. And we'll be love, we'd love to interact with you uh, throughout the show today. Is Antonia in class? Is that where the um, Antonia is uh, picking up Everett. Uh, oh, that's Thompson, right. Um, wow. Who just returned from the Faith Floods the Courtroom, where we had great news here in Tucson, Arizona, that the all charges, both the misdemeanor and the felony charges against the No More Deaths uh, volunteer uh, was were completely dropped, uh, not dropped, I'm sorry, he was acquitted by a jury uh, after being tried twice uh, because, you know, the administration is going after people. Why, why don't you go ahead and share his horrible crime? Uh, well, you know, he was uh, following his religious convictions, uh, providing humanitarian aid to people who have no other choice 
but to come across the desert to immigrate uh, to safer uh, spaces. So the uh, he was charged with harboring um, illegal uh, immigrants, but what he was really doing was giving water uh, to people who, who needed it and taking care of sick people. How people can use the word Christian to describe themselves is yeah. really yeah. astonishing. One of, the, one of the things I really loved about what the judge said uh, was that uh, he, his religious convictions compelled him to do this work. So. One would wish for a few more of those religious convictions these days. Um, Kiana Perkins, you're behind something, so we can't see you, but we know you're there. Uh, we're excited today. We'll be talking about the Lareda Conference, Liberal Religious Educators Association. But before we do, anything else going on that anyone wants to bring up besides that wonderful news from Arizona? How much going on in my world besides a wedding and, you know, a birthday? Well, one of the things that worked, <clears throat> which is huge in the same week, Meg, I mean, woohoo. Um, one of the things that I did want to lift up this weekend, uh, East Shore Unitarian Church, where I'm the religious educator, and West Seattle have been coordinating on creating a service. We're not doing the same exact service uh, in our respective congregations. What we're doing is um, telling the real story, the origin story of Thanksgiving, and um, that it actually the legal, uh, when Lincoln wrote the proclamation to make Thanksgiving a holiday it had nothing to do with pilgrims or Native Americans. <clears throat> it was, uh, I don't think it was necessarily try to prevent civil war, but it was definitely like, hey, let's unite and be grateful for, I don't know what. Um, so uh, that, so we're gonna do that this weekend. And somebody pointed out, I mean, not, it, it, it was someone um, uh, said, well, the children are going to be going to their schools that week and hearing the mythology. And so, you know, me and the minister who's at West Seattle, uh, Deanna said, well, that's okay. They can then relay the, the correct information. Like, yeah, it's gonna be uncomfortable, but we cannot keep perpetrating this um, harmful mythology. It's simply um, not, it's something that we need to continue to disrupt in a, in a meaningful way. So that's, I'll be leading the service this Sunday. There'll be folks, many folks in it. Um, and that's what we're going to be doing. And we'll be talking about Chief Seattle um, and the uh, ch the chief who Seattle is named after um, and telling the story of the indigenous people who are here. We'll be excited to hear how that goes. I do want to mention Transgender Day of Remembrance, which sadly is the same day as my birthday each year, um, that many churches um, <clears throat> noted it in different ways. and. You know, that this has evolved over years. Um, the number I heard was 311 folks were murdered this year, primarily black transgender women. Um, and, you know, just, I, I noticed some blogs saying white cisgender churches really need to pay attention to whose voice is centered and how this is done and, and you know, how we really talk about this day. Um, you know, and I know that there are disagreements within all kinds of communities about it. You know, do you name suicides is one of the really sad questions that's asked every year. Um, and, um, but just to, just to say, 
today is the day after TDOR and it's resilience. It's all about, you know, the beautiful art and um, statements of resilience that I think groups like Forward Together are making. And, um, and but just uh, also an acknowledgement of how traumatic that day is for many of our siblings of faith. Um, that it's, it's um, we, CLF used to do big services, you know, in partnership with transgender groups who eventually said, we're, we're toast, leave us, <laughs> leave us be here. And um, so, so if you're in a congregation where gender nonconforming and trans people stepped forward yesterday for leadership, today's a really good day to send a whole lot of love to them in concrete and, um, um, you know, actual physical ways, massage, food, flowers, things, things that are supportive of living in a body in this world. Um, so I'll, I'll just say that it's, uh, yeah, it's a very, very painful and necessary day. So, uh oh, we lost Lori. Did she? I hope she meant to leave. Okay. Well, we're still recording and we're still live, so <laughs> we're still here. I, th I think we are, and it says six participants. So beats me. I, yeah. I don't know. Um, oh. I'll also mention that yesterday was the um, Latina Pay Equity Day, which means that. Um, it will have taken Latinas until November 20th to make um, the equivalent of what our white male counterparts made in all of 2018. So it's actually a full year and uh, 10 months before um, we see pay equity. So just hoping to raise the visibility of, you know, how we need to be resourcing um, Latina entrepreneurs and um, folks that are out in our communities really trying to make a difference. Y'all, I am so sorry. I'm gonna try to come back at about 10.30. I, we have a building emergency that I need to address in my pastoral hat. So I will be back. I'm sorry. I was the one who was unmuted because I didn't mean to not be muted. Sorry. Love you. Bye. Right. Take care. Good luck. Good luck. Take care, Ann Arbor. Aisha and Christina, don't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here hanging out. I got I got the same mug you do, Meg. Hey, I know. So. Right? <laughs> Jai's like, oh, you use that evil corporate mug, and I'm like, I love the shape of it. I can't help it. <laughs> kind of a perfect mug, really. It, I know. <laughs> well, hmm. Okay, so I I know one of our guests is on our way, and and on their way, and the other guest has a building emergency. So should we talk about Lareda or? Why not? Two of our guests are huge leaders in Lareda and have plenty to say about it. So maybe you could start with a little bit of what the topic was and how it got there and what's going on. And kind of generally, you know, I, I would just say that Lareda often has been in our movement, the leader of anti-oppression work. In my experience, it was Lareda back in the 80s that really started looking at systemic racism and um, I, I often just find that religious educators as a group are, are the leaders. I, I always say are the community organizers because let's face it, if we're a parish minister, 
we can just give a crappy sermon and move on. But if you don't have the teachers in place, all hell breaks loose. So you have to be a community organizer. It's not optional. Um, but anyway, so I, that's my usual tribute to religious educators. So uh, what happened this year? I know we've talked about past years and really good stuff going on. How was it this time? So it was our largest fall conference in our history, 250 attendees, uh, the highest number of ministers. I believe, Christina, was what, 35 or 40 ministers um, ordained clergy. And for many, it was their first Loretta Fall Conference. So our lineup uh, was uh, Reverend Sophia Betancourt, Reverend um, Rosemary Bray McNatt, and Dr. Elias Ortega Aponte. And they were presented a program called The Theology of Suffering. Was there another word, Christina? I think it was the theology of suffering. Um, and it was actually suggested by Jessica York, director of Congregational Life Staff about two years ago, because one of the things I don't think we do well as Unitarian Universalists is talk about grief and suffering uh, in a way to, to um, and sit in discomfort and work through suffering in a, in a substantive spiritual way. So the three of the three of them gave an extraordinary uh, keynote uh, series of keynotes throughout the um, conference, and Rosemary Bray McNatt led her Odyssey, um, and and it was it was powerful. I think uh, Christina, please jump in uh, before I go yeah, any further. So you know, I think that um, so the the full title is Theologies of Suffering and Wholeness, and I think. As Unitarian Universalists, we're really quick to try and get to the wholeness. And what um, Elias and um, Sophia and Rosemary really helped us um, talk about is the suffering part and and how to hold each other in a faithful way as people are going through um, difficulty and and as we as a faith are going through. Um, what can feel like profound suffering um, and really what that means from a theological perspective and how to have touchstones throughout that time, you know, when you're having those moments in your life that, that are really profoundly difficult, um, to how to have touchstones to our faith and be working towards wholeness, but not at the expense of, of really being in touch with what's going on in that moment. Um, because we're really quick to get to the answer and the next thing and how do we make it not happen again? And what, you know, what, what went wrong? You know, we get really quick to trying to get to wholeness. I remember um, Dr. Bill Jones saying decades ago at a Lareda event, that for privileged people, suffering is a very temporary condition to be overcome. Someone died, somebody had an accident, um, that it's an anomaly. But for some people, suffering is what they're born into, what they live in, and just part of life. Was that part of what you were looking at? Was cultural suffering as well as, you know, kind of pastoral emergency type stuff? Or what I'm, I'm curious about the kind of frame around suffering as you spoke about it. Yeah, I think it was, it was, it's interesting you brought up Bill Jones because he was also brought up at 
the symposium and uh, at Laredo Fall Conference. So he, the fall conference he attended was the lowest um, attendance because people thought, you know, racism's over. We don't have to talk about that. And this was the highest attended um, people wanting to grapple. And to answer your question, um, it was a yes and. I think I think what came up for me is that one at one point, um, Elias, Dr. Ortega, was talking about um, creating ritual, consistent ritual, right? And one kind and one that carries us every day, if possible, or or consistently, maybe each week. And um, someone commented, "Well, we do a." Um, uh, what is that burning, uh, you know, uh, uh, at the end of the year, I guess you write a grief and then burn it. And, you know, he said once a year, and it's not a bad thing. It's just, that is something we do once a year, we're done. Uh, and, and what he was talking about was much more um, integrated. And, and it, and it does, as you're talking, Meg, it speaks to our social location because Sure, when suffering is temporary, then once a year talking about the death that happened or the uh, event can be dealt with. But when you're in poverty and, and depending on where you are in your social location, then the suffering is is constant. And, and somebody also got up and said, well, we all suffer. And I did have a, a, a visceral reaction to that. And I said, well, yeah, we all suffer. And we're about 10 minutes away from where Freddie Gray was murdered by cops. And so so the, the state, we have to be mindful that the statement we all suffer um, doesn't land equally in, in any way. And when you are the uh, receiving end of a target identity of systemic oppression, then uh, that suffering is, is constant. And maybe, you know, you have some joy in your life that is a, joy is an act of resistance. Um, and, and that was named, but what I wondered, and Christina and, and Mac, hi, Mac, um, I wonder if either of you, uh, how, I mean, I felt like, huh, there's still a chasm between the folks in the room who don't have a target identity who are hearing this and those who do. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I'm curious how that, how you think it landed for folks. So I, I definitely want to answer that question and I want to welcome Mac. Um, so Mackenzie Dade, yay, is here in the house. And um, Mac, I'm going to read your bio if that's okay. And then, yeah, <laughs> um, because I really actually love it. <laughs> Mac is a glitter loving pusher of the buttons, a queer woman of color, teaching artist, feminist, poet, and general rabble-rouser. She got her start in feminism from a book of feminist nursery rhymes when she was six, count it, and her start in pop culture analysis at nine years of homeschooling, translation, nine years of TV and movie watching, which is an education of itself, that's what I'm saying. A firm believer in queering the collective consciousness, she strives to inspire people to redesign their idea of normal and step out of their comfort zone. She takes inspiration from Gertrude Stein, Angela Davis, Faith Lahane, Audre Lorde, and Bell Hooks. Her words to live by is have no filter, give no fucks. Someone once described her as the love child of Angela Davis and RuPaul. Yes! And she thinks that just about sums it up. Welcome, Mackenzie! So glad Hi! <laughs> So we are, we dove in, uh, Mac, we dove into Falcon and the topic of it being about suffering and um, 
wholeness and kind of the idea that you use are so quick to move on from the suffering part because so many UUs can, um, that their social location allows them to move out of that um, to get to the resolution or the solution or whatever it is you want to call it. And whether or not we heard that named um, kind of throughout the conference or, or whether we heard it named and maybe other people didn't take the same thing away from that, which is kind of what I observed is like, I heard it named a lot in, I think it was Elias who was talking about how we really don't have ritual. Like, so the Catholic faith, you have confession and you do confession before you can have your sacraments. And there's a real um, liturgy of the week of, you know, how you get to um, grace and we don't really have that and and you know some of the reasons why we don't so I'm gonna I'm gonna shut up and let Mac say anything you want to about all of that something completely different um I actually do agree I don't think that I heard a conversation about being able to move on from it outside of a couple conversations I had mostly with folks who've had to confront the inability to move forward within the congregations most folks, I don't think necessarily saw that in themselves or in the way in which they discussed things are happening. But I think folks who definitely, like I talked to a minister who was having to deal with the fact that like her church could not grieve about the fact that like they were going to have to move buildings and she was trying to figure out ways to steward that situation. But for the most part, I don't think a lot of the workshops or even side conversations about the keynotes were really focusing on that. It was very much about like, cool, here's this new theological thing we can take back to the congregation and not necessarily like what that already looks like in our lives. New, the idea of, of suffering being new is, so um, it feels very you, you, like, you know, that's the point of religion and why, right? I, I mean, not working through what doesn't make sense, right? Trying to make sense of what doesn't make sense. So it, it is a huge statement and I, I don't disagree with you at all. I think that is a thing that I think that's why a lot of ministers maybe came to, um, <clears throat> uh, to, to start to, I guess, to kind of see what this looks like, or at least engage in what this might look like. And it is curious to me that this is so hard for us to, to, um, to, yeah, to live. I also want to name, and, and I want to keep talking about this, is that it was the first Laredo where we had a people of, a Black Indigenous people of color retreat before fall conference started. So we had that space um, and uh, and we had a space for trans folks, I feel as well, and non-binary folks. Did you have worship that included lament or or other? forms of, was the worship experiential new form for many people? Um, because I feel, I do feel like the absence of meaningful ritual um, in congregations and as a minister trying to figure out how to bring that in. I mean, we do blue Christmas for people having a rough holiday, you know, but we don't do kind of, you know, kind of monthly hard life. I mean, you know, we don't do ongoing um, 
acknowledgement of the people. I mean, small groups, but not worship, I guess. is. And I know Lareda looks way beyond worship, but I just wondered if there were meaningful worship experiences. Sunshine Wolf, Reverend Sunshine Wolf, the last morning uh, did a compelling and heartfelt worship. Um, yeah, Mac or Christina? I mean, I think worship was generally what it always is with UU spaces. We did the things that we do best, but maybe didn't um, think about all possible outcomes. And I don't think it necessarily tied in any of the worships with the work that we were doing, um, which is unfortunate. I think there was there is definitely ways to do that to tie in the theology of suffering and the different ways in which we maybe collectively suffered while at Lareda, uh, but that didn't happen. But I think they tried. <laughs> yeah, I think I think what we, I mean, what I took away from worship at Lareda Falcon is that, um, is that we need to do a better job in our professional spaces of really understanding what, what our purpose is in having worship. Um, because is it a time for us to come together collectively as professionals and explore, you know, what it means for us to be in community together in that time and place? Is it a time to explore different types of worship service? Um, you know, is worship at a professional gathering a learning experience? Or is it a worshipful experience? And I know it doesn't have to be the binary, but I think um, having some framework around it um, is going to be really helpful in the future to, to know, you know, why are we gathering there together? I think it's different when we're like at GA because that is lay and professional together. And so we're really clear that we are there for a worshipful experience. And yes, people may take elements of that back to their congregations um, for incorporation into their worship, but but we're really clear that we're there to have, you know, I think um, a holy experience together, an experience of the holy together. And so, you know, I think for our professional groups, you know, that worship framing, you know, maybe we just need a little bit more work on that. I, I will say that worship was difficult. Um, there were, a more than one um, situations at Loretta Falcon worship that were um, harmful to some folks in in the room, and I, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna gloss over it. Um, and you know, both Asia and I are on the Loretta board, and and we take that seriously as a board. Um, and you know, we need to do better. We know better. We need to do better. Yeah, I think we're trying to invent new forms in terms of worship. I, I think of uh, Reverend Derek Jackson gave this amazing talk a few years ago at, um, when the teaching pastors gathered at Meadville about lament and how to do lament. And I was like, let's do it now. Don't just talk about it. I mean, it was a talk. It wasn't a worship service. He gave a talk. But I just thought, you know, um, some class together to create our own laments would be a starting place because he was, you know, looking at biblical lament and the forms that it takes. And I, I think um, 
for everyone, there is much to lament. And for some communities, you know, collective lament could be really, really powerful, I think. Um, so, I mean, yeah. Aisha, you were going to say something. Well, I pre yeah, thank you, Meg, for that. And I, I appreciate, um, Christina, your framing. Um, because I think that's the crux of what the learning for me was this past fall conference. As Christina said, this is our first year, this is our first year on this Loretta board. Um, and what happens in transitions, and I guess it happened, and I guess I know what happens in congregations as well, and anywhere where there's a board, there's a few members that leave and a few come on, so then there's catch up. Um, and then you know, fall conference starts getting planned before a new board takeover and not takeover, <laughs> transition. That's the word I meant. Um, <laughs> seriously, that's what I meant. Um, and, and so what, that's all to say is then, you know, you have to choose what is the, the most important thing that needs to be uh, identified to, to work on at that point. So the learning um, for me, and, and definitely I see opportunities for learning and growth and, oh, okay. Christine, your framing is what is worship for? And maybe it's a centering time and maybe we don't call it worship. Maybe we have one worship um, because we did have a couple of worships that, um, you know, um, were impact impactful in, in not a so positive way and not intentionally. I mean, sure, the 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 theme may have been theology of suffering and wholeness, but I don't think the intent was to actually make people suffer um, in that way. And so, uh, and Mac, I'd love to hear your if you are uh, open to it, your perception of um, the worships that you were uh, in attendance for? Uh, for me, so I generally am pretty trepidatious about UU worship services, and I say this as a DRE, right? So I'm part of them quite often. Um, and for me, everything else seemed to be really themed, right? There was like a track for new DREs, and we did all new DRE things. You know, the theology of suffering carried over, not just into our keynotes, but into smaller workshops. Worships just were sort of a separate, contained entity that just sort of did what they were going to do. Um, and I think it might have been the opening one was the one where I sort of had the most like, concern, <laughs> um, where it seemed to just not match up with the city that we were in, with the community that we generally were trying to create, even within those first few hours, it just seemed very odd. Hey, it's Kiana, hi. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for me, it just didn't, none of them connected. And so it was really kind of hard to pop into like worship, great. And then go into this completely disconnected other thing. Um, my only real other comparison is sort of finding our way home where everything sort of seemed to flow into each other. Like our worship sort of influenced the next round of conversations that we had that flowed into the lunch cohorts that we were in. So this is just a very new and disjointed experience for me. And like the worships were not the connector that like they had been for me in the other space that I'd been in. Thank you. Welcome, Kiana. Welcome, Kiana. Glad to see you back. Hope all is okay in Ann Arbor there. All is, uh, one, thank you all for being patient with me because I was communicating on seven levels when I like frantically came back. Um, and then I just want to acknowledge Meg, I think I might have missed this. I might have heard it. Congratulations is in order. Yay. You heard it. You heard it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm excited for that. Um, 
Mac, I just want to say it was so much fun to spend time with you at Lareda because you have an infectious energy that I don't always have sometimes. And I need that reminder to be excited and fun. And um, I appreciate you. So whoop, whoop. thank you. You just um, those other two I'm gonna leave alone. <laughs> those other two they, they get enough accolades. Um, so what what's the question? Well, first we're gonna introduce you and let people know who you are. So Keanu, there you are. Kiana Perkins is a Minneapolis native. She wandered into a UU church back in the early 2000s when she took a job as the youth coordinator for Unity Summer. In 2010, after moving to Ann Arbor, you joined the first youth congregation of Ann Arbor with Reverend Gail Geisenheiner in 2017. And on a new quest, she found Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism and recommitted to this faith. Kiana recently took on the formal role, which is what you are at now, the social as the social justice pastoral care coordinator at the Ann Arbor congregation. And you spend your time between on-site congregational work and volunteering for Blue on Team Sankofa. And you are the parent of two tweens who one day might be Unitarian Universalists. <laughs> Yay. So we're, yeah, we're, we're debriefing Falcon and, and we were just talking about, I think you heard um, some of what Max said about the, the worships. Uh, but feel free to talk about whatever you want. I want to talk about my tweens, my little, my little people, because, uh, and then I'm going to connect it to Lareda. Um, the, before I went to Lareda, I said to my son, I said, do you go to church or do you go to work with mom? And he was like, I go to church with mom. I mean, he said, I go to work with mom. So he doesn't see this building as a faith space like that. He's just like, this is where we have to go. She said it. And it really hit me that we, as much as I am faith filled and practice it very much so that I wasn't doing it at home. So that had already struck me. So then. Um, Dr. Elias was talking about how we bring what we know to be true about our faith walk into our homes. And that really struck me. Um, I thought I had it with me, but um, a little chalice. I bought a little chalice and we're gonna start lighting that on my dinner table. And um, when we have meals together to bring that chalice lighting back into my home and to have more conversations about faith and what it means to to be a person of faith. Um, and my kids may not, this may not really resonate with them, but I think I have an obligation to keep asking the question, to keep creating the space, to create the invitation. Um, as much as we talk about religious education when we're in this building, it, uh, and this is something he said as well, um, it has to be beyond the building. Um, it can't just be religious educators job on Sunday morning for the 47 minutes they have your kids to create a, a faith uh, container. <laughs> just like with school, you have to back it up at home, just like when you bring your kids to, to religious education or spiritual growth and development on Sunday, you have to find ways to back that up throughout the week. Um, and I realized I've been inconsistent in that. So that's something I really, really took away from Rita is the obligation I have to um, share my faith with my kids. And because they're they're in a UU space, I'm really lucky that they could end up not being Unitarians and I could be at peace with that because I know they went through a process. Um, and I feel like I'm inviting them into the process by reiterating the things at home. Uh, my daughter's in sixth grade, so they do all the field trips. So she's been to 
temple. I think they went to mosque. Oh, we went to uh, Islamic faith space. Um, and so they're going to all of these different things and experiencing different faiths. And I wouldn't be surprised if she became something like a Quaker, you know, like she just is so open to everything. Um, but I'm really blessed that they'll both have that experience. Okay, we actually had that same conversation. There was a couple of people where we were talking about like, great, I have the kids for a couple of minutes. And there's even a guy during a Q&A who was like, well, what happens when you have parents who are bringing their kids because they want their kids to have religious community, but the parents have a whole lot of religious trauma? And sort of an answer was given, but I actually found a practical answer to that. So we do the traveling chalice at my church. I got a million, one of our million of baskets, spray painted it some fancy colors, and then I went on the UUA bookstore and lost my mind. Um, and so there's a chalice, candles, um, books for kids. So like Unitarian Universalism is a really long name. I have a copy of, I forget what it's called. It's like the Burgundy book. It looks kind of like the Blue Song book, but it's got different writings in it. Uh, I've got the actual Church of the Larger Fellowship, um, Religious Education at Home pamphlet in there. I've got all sorts of stickers and stuff for the kids. And there's also a book called Character Building One Day at a Time, which is like four minute stories you can read to your kids and then ask them questions about it. And every week it goes home with a different family. And at the end of their week, there's a book where they can write or draw whatever their experience is. And it goes through the entirety of RE. And then at the end of the RE year, it goes on summer vacation with the congregation. So then the congregation has to do what all the families just did. The number of interesting conversations that I've had just because like, Kids don't know why they're at church. They don't, they're not in service long enough to understand how worship works, which is why they get antsy during worship a lot. So they learn like, this is what a chalice lighting is. This is times when you can do it. These are like, it's also letting parents have sort of theological forming conversations about what character means, like, why are we doing this? So there's a practical way to fix that, which I think is actually interesting that we never did have sort of the practical conversation of how to tackle those things. Mac, that's a wonderful idea. Um, this, so when we talk about Loretta, sometimes we talk about religious education and we, I forget, I'm going to own my statement that adults need education too. Um, I am a social justice pastoral care coordinator. I was like, why am I going to Loretta? But the truth of the matter is I can't ask folks to go be a caregiver or to visit somebody if they don't have those skills, if I haven't educated them on the realities of being a caregiver or respite care or what signs to look out for in terms of memory loss or stroke or any of those things. If they don't feel, if they don't have the tools to make the best decision, I'm at a loss. So I have to, and I, on the social justice end, I can't tell you, ask you, Valentel, you know what happens. Um, I can uh, vividly suggest with my eyes like this, um, that you go to Flint and help with the water crisis if you don't understand that there's a water crisis. So there's a level of adult education that needs to take place, but to speak explicitly to your point, Mac, um, Reverend Linda Susan here at UUAA taught a class two weekends ago about healing your religious um, your religious past, and she's actually put that on on her public page, her uh, Reverend page. Um, so there's an actual curriculum now that exists around helping folks process their um, their religious past so that they can re-engage in ways that are meaningful. Um, so just as much as we set up things for youth, which I think the thing you're doing, the passing of the chalice, I'm like, I need that in my life. 
we also have to think about how adults engage information differently, short, quick, fast, you know, can we Instagram it? Can we YouTube it? How can we get adults just as educated as we, we have youth and families? So this is an exciting conversation, I think, for all parents. So I'm curious if the workshops at the Loretta Conference talked about how to help your own kids and kids in the congregation process suffering. Um, because, you know, as you talk, I, I am aware, Kiana, that I never shared my prayer life with my child, who's 23 now, and it's too late. Um, I didn't say, oh, you're in pain, let's pray together. Though Meg, I pray. Mm-hmm. Meg, it's never too late. Never You're too probably late. right. You're probably right. If they weren't ready, you probably didn't share because they weren't ready, Meg. But now at 23, maybe they're ready. It maybe they're, yeah, just be open to that. No, I, to that. that's a good point. But I, it's more, it's less that they weren't ready and more that I didn't do it. I mean, I, I look back and think, why didn't I do that? That was my, that was on me. Um, and, but, so I'm curious if, if um, you all have both mentioned tools that you've invented or that getting created in your congregations, if that was the kind of conversation about suffering that was going on also in the workshop spaces at Lareda. I, so I have two answers to that. One of which is, you know, what I, what I hear us all talking about is, um, parents as primary religious educators of their children in the same way that we are so clear with OWL that parents are the primary um, sexuality educators of their children. Um, we need to be super, super clear that parents are also, or parents caregivers are also the primary religious educators of their children. And, um, and that, that takes us into the consumeristic view of a lot of UU congregations of folks being in the pews, expecting this to be a consumer, you know, consumer product, both in worship and in religious education. So I think a lot of that dovetails together of, you know, how do we in some ways bring the holy and spiritual back into um, a faith that was, you know, that that is part of our theological grounding and faith work. And I think that's um, a lot of what I heard Sophia talking about at Falcon um, was, you know, let's really look at, and, and Rosemary, um, let's really look at our theological grounding um, so that we can remember that there's a reason we're together in these spaces on Sunday morning um, that, you know, aren't a civic group um, but a religious group. And um, so did the workshops, to answer your question, Meg, did the workshops focus on, um, um, I, I would say what you're asking is, did it really focus on religious, ed as parents, as religious educators? Um, or, or congregations. I'm curious if there are ways to talk to kids meaningfully about suffering. Um, I, that was not my experience of the, of the workshop tracks, and I'm trying to think back to them to, to answer that better, but um, if, if other folks were there. Well, the workshop tracks, um, it kind of is a mini G, it's not that it's a mini GA, but it's, um, folks were invited to offer workshops, so there was a Church of Office 
Office of Church Finances gave a workshop, uh, Reverend Richard Nugent. And um, the one that I, and I think Kiana, I don't know, Mac, if you were in the one that um, Reverend Natalie Fenimore and Reverend Anthony Johnson did, that one was extraordinary. Um, Kiana, you want to talk about your impressions of it? Unmute. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I think that um, Reverend Natalie and Anthony, who I think is on a path towards ministry, um, <laughs> I posted some pictures of those of that workshop. Um, essentially, just how do we fully incorporate the experience of African American children, who we frequently see sometimes without African American parents, um, into uh, <laughs> that's as close as I get to Cardi B. Um, how do we integrate those experiences and those truths in a way that's valid and meaningful and not just February 1st through the 29th? So I really appreciated the opportunity to learn about some of the UU, um, UU Black history, for lack of a better term, um, an opportunity to learn to the full story of some of um, folks who I'm excited my kids will read about in history books. Um, Cause by then we'll have black UU history books. Um, and so the, my mind's a little jumpy, work with me here, people. Reverend Natalie really has a, it's a curriculum. It's a system set up to have a conversation that takes ownership of the history and the experience. It's beautiful. Um, when it comes out, we're going to get it. I don't know if the, the team here knows about that, the RE team here at my church, but Actually, they do. One of my coworkers is there with me, and he took a lot away from that time as well. Um, that was actually really cool. We don't normally work together in that capacity, so for him to sit in on that conversation where we're talking about, Aisha, tell me who was the the pioneer we read about? Francis Ellen Watkins Harper. Yep, and so he got to learn about her, and we got to start actually like, ooh, how could we integrate this in? So we're really excited about it. I think I think uh, sometimes we don't talk about those folks because we don't know how. And I feel like Reverend Natalie and Anthony's project gives us a context to talk about them that feels more um, respectful and not uh, tokenized. And it also names that all of um, UU history is not white. And I want to um, th thank you for those watching and comments. So uh, religious educator Kathy Smith said there commented there is so much rich conversation among religious educators about family ministry and bring faith bringing faith home i am saddened to hear from the presenters that somehow that isn't coming through so i'm i'm unclear if we're not talking about it or if the family so family family ministry and where it's happening varies widely so it's not that it's not happening um it is happening within the context of wherever we are so I, I'm not sure, Kathy, if you want to uh, follow up on what it is you think isn't or is happening. And I also want to name uh, the four of us are religious educators of color. Um, and Kiana, I know you're not, that's not officially your title. And I absolutely experience you as a religious educator. Um, so I want to name that, um, well, the three of you can also, for, this is from my perspective. Um, my identity has impacted how both I experience Unitarian Universalism and how my role is both experienced, how I experience my role in the congregation and how I can uh, lead the program. So yes, I affirm family ministry. I'm a huge OWL supporter. I'm an OWL trainer. Um, and yet in the context of where I am, there's, um, 
what's the word? It's nuanced. So it's not that family ministry is not happening. It's happening in different ways. So it, please feel free, folks, to to um, chime in. Yeah, I think Kathy, Kathy, the the crux of what you said is there's so much rich conversation among religious educators about family ministry and bringing it home. We, yes, absolutely. This is not like groundbreaking news, right? Like <laughs> we've been talking about parents being um, the primary religious you know, educator of their kids for decades. Um, that absolutely is not new. And there is rich conversation and there are some really brilliant religious educators who have written curricula around this and training around this without a doubt um where i see but what i see that is is among religious educators and we cannot we cannot be the only ones talking about that we need that has to be a cultural change of our congregations and that's the part that that I'm talking about hasn't occurred. And certainly as religious educator of color, um, we haven't felt, um, I will say I haven't felt because if we were that in as a culture in our congregations, I believe that our use of color would feel so much more welcomed and so much more at home if we truly had family ministry as a culture in our congregations, um, as opposed to this consumerist, um, more consumerist um, feel that we have of people just coming in and getting what they want and always assuming that worship is going to touch them specifically. And if it didn't, then something was wrong with worship because their needs have to be met every single time. Um, and so, yes, how do we take this thing that we know as religious educators and shift that into the congregation? And that is going, we can't do that without our, our clergy colleagues. We can't do that without our music director colleagues. We can't do that without our administrative colleagues. We can't do that without our membership colleagues. We cannot do that without our other professional colleagues um, doing it. it, you know. Religious, religious educators can can be as revolutionary as we can, but within the power structure of a congregation, unless we have buy-in from the folks that are that are at all areas of that pyramid, it's not going to happen. So, I think the question to me, the question isn't more education about how do we teach about religious educators about parents being the primary religious educators to them, it's how do we teach it to the congregation? Yeah, so I agree with that because the big problem that a lot of people run into and are either surprised or don't know how to handle is a lot of the congregations skew older, richer, and very much transactional folks. And so when you have younger folks with families coming in, it's not a particularly welcoming space um, and so you can't even have the conversation of how do you religiously educate your kid if kids and families aren't welcome in the first place. Like my favorite sad story to tell people is I think in week 10, uh, I had a conversation with the kids about home. So I don't always read them a story during time for all ages. I was like, let's talk about home and what does that feel like and what does that mean? 
And I said, well, what do you feel when you're at home? And they got around to, you know, love, taking care of all that good stuff. And I was like, well, what about church? Is this considered a home? Is that how you feel? Like, do you feel loved? Crickets. Kids didn't say a word. And like, you can't have parents be like, hey, here's this religious home I'm going to bring my kids to if that's how the kids feel when they walk in. So I don't even necessarily think it's, we're even at the like, oh, we're having lots of conversation, bring in ministers. It's like, to like work with us. It's like, no, 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 no. Have a whole overhaul (laughs) of congregations. And then we'll start talking about (laughs) educating parents who may not know, because right now the people who are here and should know better don't. And for me, that's sort of my battleground of just like, I can't give a parent this information that says, here are seven principles and here's our six sources and here's how you should teach your kids when they're walking into a space where no one is upholding those things when it comes to their own children, you know? So. Kiana, did you want to? I'm looking for, just so that y'all know, I'm, I can do seven things at once. I'm looking for the curriculum that uh, Linda Susan created. So that's why I look kind of distancy because I want to try to find it for folks in the next six minutes. Um, and we I just want to thank you. We can you, also as a- put that up after so you could. Yeah, Kiana, I just let you know that I did find it and posted it to the. Oh, sweet. I was like, Lord, I saw it. Okay. Um, The other thing, Mac, as a, so I wear a lot of hats, but one of them is I am a parent. And so thank you for reminding me that I haven't made, I haven't been as articulate as I could be about my kids, about the layeredness of this space, that this is where mama works, but Sunday morning is different. and so I need to walk, I need to walk them through that. Um, and and I need to ask them if they feel safe at home. And that question, I'm they, yeah, my kids don't already like you, Matt, because they're about to get quizzed down this weekend about what is home. They're gonna be writing essays and they will be whose idea was this? Whose idea was this? <laughs> but thank you, I need that. Um, I want to name, there's a, in, in our five minutes left, but first I do want to, uh, someone, I think Chris Kirsten Hunter uh, named uh, their favorite quote from Reverend Dr. Rosemary Bray McNatt. The entire movement needs to change our relationship to the work that religious educators do. Amen. <laughs> and uh, Kirsten lifted up, which is probably a whole nother show. Um, I'm just going to read the quote. I think one of the challenges things for me at Falcon was an awareness that many religious educators do not have the skills or resources to be doing this deep work. Laredo Falcon being a space specifically for religious educators, the theme and the central focus are the central focus. I wonder if the panel could speak to the muddy line between the responsibility of the minister and the congregation to be supporting children, youth, and families with some of these skills and the work of the religious educator. And I will name that it depends Some religious educators have the training and resources, others do not, but the default feels like it's the job of the religious educator, and I wonder if that needs to be looked at. Are we putting the expectation on our ministers to be serving this part of our population with education and training? Well, yeah, I mean, it's again, that's a whole nother show because I think one of the my disappointments in learning about the ministerial formation process and and on the road to ordained ministry in Unitarian Universalism there's very little expectation of understanding religious education or, or uh, faith formation. And I think that's a disservice to our entire movement. So um, that's a complicated question, but I don't know if in the last four minutes, anybody else wants to chime in on that. 
I mean, I think that's super, super accurate because, you know, when I first got here, I was working 20 hours um, and the expectation that like I can fix problems that I did not create and that have been around for like a century <laughs> was heavy. And I actually discovered later that there are DREs that are 15 hours and just this expectation that, you know, any idea that someone has about religious education, we can execute. It's going to stress people out. It's going to burn people out as shown by the very full new DRE workshop, because there's a lot of new people because people burn out because we can't do all that work in 15 hours and 20 hours and 30 hours. So. And uh, Tyrazinde Perez said that muddy line is actually the beautiful space of shared ministry. Amen. Right? Amen. Ty coming in with the good word. All right. <laughs> All right. It's so true. And, and yes, to shared ministry and yes, to family ministry and the ways in which those bring us deeper into our theology, right? As, as Unitarian Universalists, like that is really, I can only surmise that as we get deeper into family, the shared ministry and family ministry, that we will get deeper to, to our called center. Amen. Because I mean, are the, the I'm okay, I could go off. I won't, I'll ask a question instead. Are the talks available? Um, were they filmed? The keynotes, is there any way for people to access them who weren't there? Yes, they can go to the Lareda Facebook page and um, most of the keynote theme talks are on there. Yeah. Well, it sounds like an amazing conference with revolutionary, once again, revolutionary themes uh, for our whole movement about multi-generational, about embodied uh, congregational life, about creating worship that actually is about what else is going on in the community and not set aside hour that is unrelated. Lots of the themes I think are beneficial. So we're coming to the top of the hour, but I just want to invite if anybody didn't get to say something you wanted to say that we didn't get to. I just want to say thank you all for your patience today uh, with me. Um, I know I'll get invited back because I bribe people, but um, <laughs> I also want to, isn't it somebody's birthday today? Happy yeah. birthday to you. Yeah. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Love you. Love you. We love you all. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, so everybody. Are on, Is everybody uh, on this thing have a November birthday? <laughs> April, baby. I'm an Aries. March, I'm a Pisces. Okay. There's a lot of November. Gemini. So we <laughs> are taking a break next week for Thanksgiving. Everybody have, however you celebrate, honor, or talk about the indigenous peoples that are in your area, whose land you're on. In some cases, you're on your own land rock on the rest of my indigenous crowd we really are going to miss you next week but hope you're spending it with family and uh friends and called family i'm a, i'm i'm available in uh ann arbor detroit i'm willing to drive as far as chicago for a hot plate i'm not being funny um me and my kids can just take up a couch a couch and a chair uh, we hungry 
we uh we hungry, so if you want to feed us, I got you. Just yes. DM me. Somebody pick message up, you. Somebody pick up Kiana for three plates. She got the kids, and they're adorable. Completely. If you got Wi Fi, all you gotta do is have Wi Fi and a hot plate. You wrapped. <laughs> we will see you all in two weeks. We love you. And guests, please don't go away. We say goodbye, but you don't have to go. We just stop taping. Hold on one sec. <laughs> then we talk about. This has been an episode of The View. If you would like to learn more about the CLF, visit questformeaning.org.